Welcome to No Challenges remaining on day 15 of the French Open, the extra bonus 15th day that this slam puts us through. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Courtney, it is over. C'est fini. We are done with the French Open with the 2020 slam calendar in mid-October. We're finally, it's finally done. It's been a long year. (laughs) (laughs) On every single level. (laughs) On every level, it has been a long year. I don't want to start crying in the first 30 seconds of the episode, but it might happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so today, Rafael Nadal beat Novak Djokovic handily for the French Open title. Six love, six two seven five. This match was a blowout. This match was not close. Djokovic broke back in the third set to make it a little bit competitive at the end. But by that point, he had such a mountain to climb and never really seemed to get in gear enough to challenge Rafa, who started well and stayed very sharp the whole time. I mean, Djokovic didn't break serve until the 10th return game, which what kind of Djokovic match is that? So it was a a pretty shocking final. Courtney, from what you saw, what did you make of the match? I appreciate that caveat because I didn't see much. (laughs) Um, With all due respect to the men, I just was not going to be waking up at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday uh, on the 15th day, which let's face it, there shouldn't be 15 days of a slam, especially one which has lower prize money than the other 14 day and 13 day slams. It's just a little wild. You know, I I mean, can can I give a hot take early here? Hot take. Fire. Fire. I think all slams should be 17 days. Oh, two weekends. Begin, I think they should begin three, on a Friday. They should begin yeah. on a Friday night. And that's fair. Over three weekends. That's fine. I think with you're me. wasting the weekend before a slam at like the US Open when you could have oh, I don't mind that. TV audiences. Weirdly, despite the fact that that 17 day argument completely undermines my 15 day annoyance. Right. Exactly. I buy you. I buy you because the, in that situation, the benefit is so much more mm-hmm. of a thing to me. And you can build Everybody's it more. Everybody's got time to play doubles. It's all fantastic. Doubles mixed. You know you know how much how much we, we love doubles and mixed um, and wanting top players to play doubles and mixed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I, I would buy into that. Three weekends of tennis, that might be, a, I mean, that's long. That's a long that's event. A that's a lot of weekends, but maybe, maybe. You could also have a full day off somewhere in the middle there if you wanted to. I would figure out the schedule or like a juniors only day or something. Who knows? Yeah, that's a long event. But I'm, I still, I, I'm not, I'm not, completely opposed. Okay. It's a pipe dream. But uh, let's just do 13. But uh, <laughs> but I do, um, I, I tuned into the final in the, the final set. So I did miss the first two because I slept in for about an hour and a half. And yeah, I so I don't really know what to say other than obviously hindsight is 2020. And now that we've seen how the tournament has played out, it would seem that all of the panicking and, you know, water bottle clutching at the early <laughs> part of the tournament and before the tournament about the switch in balls and the conditions and the heaviness and oh Rafa can't get that ball to kick up and you know all this sort of stuff that it was all much ado about nothing and and a, and a little bit of a reminder even though obviously Rafa was probably fueling quite a bit of that not well I I take that back because it's not like I read every single Rafa Nadal press conference so I don't Mm -hmm. know if he was fueling it he wasn't dousing the fire though in terms of saying oh it's all going to be fine like everybody's freaking out over nothing but yeah I mean it's it's weird to look back on it and think that that discussion and tenor of and and the dubits 
over Rafa Nadal's ability to win number 13 seemed to imply that numbers 1 through 12 were won under such tiny margins that a temperature drop and a ball change, like, were going to completely unwind the guy who's won 12 here and in a lot of times has blown out the field when he's won his 12. So I mean, look, people who heard the finals preview episode on day 13 that I did with Raymond Tumani heard me most emphatically. And then the other two, a little bit more cautiously, all pick Novak to win on Sunday. So I I don't regret that pick. I think it made sense at the time. I mean, Rafa had did not play a top 70 opponent until he got to the semifinals against Diego. Like he had not been super tested in this tournament, right? And he had only one clay tournament to warm up. Obviously, he was still winning, but he didn't really... He he got a very kind draw that allowed him margin for error. I mean, he lost 10 games to to Grasimov in the first round, which is more than he lost against Djokovic in the final. So I, I don't feel bad for sort of wondering if he was untested and also just being super impressed by Novak. I mean, there are two of them out there. It's not all just about evaluating Rafa. 100%. I mean, Novak had not lost a full match all year. And so Novak was coming in as sort of the ultimate threat who was... I will say at the same time, not coming in, you know, gaining speed. At the, he wasn't peaking late in this tournament because the match against Karina Nabusta and the match against Tsitsipas in, in the quarterfinals and semifinals were some of his least convincing tennis of the year in a lot of ways. And he just seemed emotionally really flat. And that's one thing that struck me in this match, too, is that Novak was so unanimated considering what a beating he was getting on the scoreboard down love and two after an hour and 30 minutes. So shout out to Nadal for taking that kind of scoreline and making it take that long to get there you could have missed much more tennis <laughs> sleeping through that kind of you know anyone Plus. else and i think even nadal and like when he beat federer in the 08 final i want to say it was longer than that but there were some close games i guess in there despite it being 11-2 but djokovic were really good but he just seemed really flat and didn't seem to really fire up well. and engage and and I don't know how I really do think a lot of that is residual to the U.S. Open. He doesn't want to be seen as a little rage ball out there or to be getting too angry. I don't think angry. that's true at all. You don't think so? You don't think he's, no. he's keeping it bottled up? My, no. My sense is that he's like leaned into it. Like if that was how into I it, felt. He'd be firing way more projectiles, I feel like. He was yelling at ball. He was like aggressively telling ball kids to give him the, the balls quicker. That was late. That he's, only happened late, though. Okay. To be fair, I didn't watch the first yeah. two sets. I just need to reiterate <laughs> this. <laughs> Oh, you're right. Know. You're right. He was. Like, when By Dan the end, texted he me, he was like, "Oh, can we do this episode?" I was like, "Dude, I did not watch that match. I didn't know that we. I was supposed to help you with this." Here's the thing. But I will say yeah. no, but I will say this on that point about Novak, because 100. percent If the thought was there's a threat to Rafa because Novak, that I absolutely understand. That's what I think what I it was. Th- yeah, yeah, but I don't know. It just felt, at least for my casual, not completely my ATP outsider perspective, it just seemed like everybody was freaking out about balls and cold weather. That's what that's what it seemed like to me for a for a while for for quite a while of this event. So that was certainly the pre-tournament freakout. And then I think that as the first I may week have went, tuned went out along, that. and he was not really being troubled by anybody. And again, his draw was not super tough. Starting off with Garasimov, McDonald, Travalia. Sebastian Corda, like, yeah, it's tough to measure, tough to really get a, a great read on where he is. And, and and honestly, and even like Sinner, Sinner did, was up a break, served for the first set against him, was up a break in the second. Like, he wasn't super convincing in that match, per se. Um, I thought Sinner, Sinner was like, you know. The Sinner is our ginger Jesus, we know. We right, know. so but, not being able to, you know, behead ginger Jesus, like, in three straight <laughs> sets is... Head. I don't know that's why. not I how Jesus behead. died, Courtney. No, I am wrong, well aware. That's, but method. I didn't want to go into... Cruci- I don't know. I didn't want to go there. Anyway. 
Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, and I say this a lot with respect to WTA finals that have, you know, top seeds or, you know, you know, whatever. And you sit there and you hype them and you are really excited these or any match, not just finals. But like no one, it's not a take, right? Or it's not analysis to be like, I think this player is going to win because I don't think that player is going to show up. Like we don't bank in our analysis that like one of the opponents is not going to show up, right? Like we sit there, we say best game on best game with a few variables that might influence whether or not they can hit their best game or not. Here's what we think is going to happen. But you don't sit there and say, well, uh, I'm sorry. I did not think that Marquette of Androsheva just wouldn't show up to the French Open final, right? Right. Like that's not how you do the analysis. So that's why I think with this final, it's a little bit hard based yeah, on and, the and, one set and that I saw. <laughs> as much as Djokovic wants to give credit to Nadal, Djokovic was not great. I mean, Djokovic, early in, at some point in this match, the unforced errors were literally like 21 to 3. Like, Yee. Nadal was, was, yeah, you did not miss much in your sleep, ATP uh, <laughs> unconsciouser. I mean, like... It was some really, good this, sleep, I gotta this, say. I, I, I'm jealous. I look forward to mine tonight. Uh, very much so. Uh, that post slam sleep—that's a good sleep. But, it's a good uh, sleep. The no alarm—the first no alarm sleep that you get after a slam. Unbelievable, unbelievable really stuff. Like no flight to catch or anything. That part's kind of nice. We'll get into more what it was about. Like to cover later. We got a couple questions about that. You know, I remember people getting mad at at me, and I guess maybe NCR as a whole, but mostly just me. I take it personally. Uh, last year during the U.S. Open, after the U.S. Open, when we didn't have a lot to say about Nadal winning, even what was a great final against Medvedev, we didn't have much to say about Nadal. Because what is there said about Nadal? I mean, like, we just saw him today do something he's done 13 times already. And, again, that's why I feel sort of silly for thinking that Novak had a good chance to win in this match. Because maybe I was overthinking things. And even that's maybe, again, maybe that's the biggest lesson here. It's like all the, you know, variables you want to throw into the equation, the math still checks out. And Nadal, like you said, has so much margin for error at the French Open, right? He has so much, so much room he's he's, he's so playing far with house ahead of money. the pack yes he's, he's playing so with house money right so that you yeah know, even if someone catches makes it closer you can still be nowhere near and, and especially and, i mean yeah nadal's never lost a semifinal never lost a final and that's getting there 13 times that's crazy and no one crazy. and and t- like i said like i think that when i don't begrudge anybody thinking that novak was going to win this title and i think that it was probably a, i mean probably a majority of people whether they would say it out loud or not like at least of like pundits and writers i think everybody was really favoring novak just because of x's and o's and you know certain certain ideas about what he was trying to prove here and things like that so it's not a bad pick or anything you know and it doesn't and none of that explains kind of having what was effectively a dud final um you know shit happens sometimes it happens that you know you just have a bad day and it comes on one of the worst times that you can have a bad day but you know with rafa i do think that that is one of the big takeaways of this of this 2020 roland garros is that despite all of the variables um all of the changes all of these things that people kind of i guess we build this myth up about rafa that that somehow he's less adaptable, less flexible, you know, because I mean, when you sit there and you watch somebody adjust their water bottles a certain way, you just start to think like they're really finicky and and precious, like, you know, about, you know, and here you go into the pandemic slam and you, there's too many things going on and too many variables. It's going to somehow rattle him. And it didn't, which is to say that I think that the biggest lesson out of 2020 Roland Garros, and we'll see if this, if people apply it to 2021, is that if he is healthy, Rafa Nadal is the guy to beat. He is the favorite to win this title every single freaking time until yeah. somebody proves otherwise. I 
I think that's right. right. And and I think I think you're totally right about him seeming him <laughs> seeming like he had is high maintenance, right? Or is somehow right. like really just finicky off that or way really and fragile. Not and, fair, but, but I don't know. And, and also, and I will say, I don't think Roth is the most reliable narrator because of, and maybe this comes from an authentic place in some ways from him in terms of, which not usually I talk about unreliable narrator, but if he's always talking about his, his doubts or however he wants to pronounce that word and, you know, and how thinking he's never the favorite any match he goes into, it's like, well, I'd really like to play my best tennis to beat, insert, to use the word Garasimov again. Yeah, like anybody, he never talks about things like he's confident in anything and so that can make it hard to get a read on him and that's that's that's, why he's him that's why when people talk about rafa and you talk about how he is basically kind of uh revolutionized or brought modern tennis into a different place for better or worse and i think that there's an argument to be made about this i think it's a genuine argument it's like one of those bar chat arguments that i would totally get into with anybody of just like whether or not it's better or worse for the sport that everybody not everybody but 99.9% of the people on tour and the people who talk about this sport think that like you're now supposed to play every point as though it's your last and you play every point the same and you exert 110% of your energy on every single point. Rafa brought that. That's a Rafa thing that he introduced, I think, to modern tennis. And now he's the model for what competitiveness looks like. And so, but in order to have that mentality, it does require you to have doubts. It does require you to not facetiously kind of like be like, you know, Serena in that clip that we we quoted yesterday of like, oh, she won one game. And I was like, oh, like, you know, <laughs> in the Olympic <laughs> final. But like, I think Rafa really believes that. I think, you know, it's like kind of that's his. Rafa's more like he took court and I was like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but like, but genuinely. Yeah. But genuinely, I don't, I'm not making fun of it. I'm like, I really do think that, but that's the fuel. It is his truth. It is his that truth. That is his truth. Yeah. And who am I to argue? And that is what has made him. I mean, one of a bunch of different things, but that is probably something that is very unique to him in terms of like what he brings to the table. So we can't, we gotta, we gotta always remember that and take it into consideration when handicapping these things. But yeah, 13, that's absurd. A couple of thoughts from, from listeners, Patreon backers, when you asked for thoughts on this episode, uh, mm. one from past recent guest, Sendel Ramamurthy, who mm. just wanted to point out how well Rafa adapted to uh, atypical conditions. Uh, when people realize how hard it was for him to do that display under these conditions. And of the big three, he has the worst indoor record, which is true. And so maybe mm. people, again, another thing that added the roof, closing, like, oh, drama for Rafa. It wasn't. It was fine. And he says it was a masterclass in changing tactics and he didn't allow Djokovic to play his best tennis. I will also co-sign that. I do think Rafa's tactical awareness and on-court smarts are underrated. People see, it's a little bit like Serena, honestly, almost. Like, like yes, people see the biceps and don't see the brains. When yes. you're like, when you can do those kind of things physically, they really underrate you as a thinker on court. And I think Rafa well, because gets a if- lot of that. Well. If your nickname is like the bull, the Spanish bull, nobody thinks that you are real, you know, that, that, yeah, people just think you bulldoze and it's, it's part of kind of the, the, un- not unfortunate, that's overstating it, but a side effect of kind of how Roger and Rafa were pitted against each other in terms of branding early in the careers of like, one's Barishnikov, the other's the bull. It's like, geez, freaking heck. Like, I mean. Jeez, <laughs> freaking heck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Philip Rivers cussing now, but um, but yeah, you know, I mean, Roger is an incredible battler. He's an incredible fighter. He can scrap as good as anybody else. And Ra- Rafa is, is just as intelligent and just as balletic in his own way and graceful yeah. and thoughtful in his tennis as Roger. But, you know, 
You do you. Exactly. So a couple more like questions. One that I think is, I, I have my own answer in mind for this, which is why I'm going to his question. This is from Paolo Rambaldi. This is more of an in-review type question. And I'm actually going to use it to queue up the Rafa quote that I queued up for this episode. But he asks, why was there so little politics on display at the French Open? I'm guessing he's referring to in after the U.S. Open, which felt very political oh, in a lot okay, of ways. Yeah. <laughs> and is this a good thing for the sport? And I will say, I think that Rafa in his own way was very political so much as life is political and poli- political is just being aware of the world yeah. around you yeah. in so many ways. And so I really liked Rafa. Rafa's talking about the pandemic a lot of times and the whole time. Uh, someone did point out that his uh, photo shoot and like press release stuff on his super yacht was really tone deaf and tacky, which I fully agree with that. I agree However, with that, but that's a, that's a tone deaf PR move and that's, right, that's not PR. necessarily that's, that's Rafa. Not right. But when Rafa got I the chance that's to speak, Rafa. I agree. Yeah. But I just wanted to put that out there as the one sort of blemish on his 2020 pandemic record. But otherwise, it's been amazing. And here is his answer today when being asked to sort of conclude about what it was like and the sort of sadness of this French Open. Congratulations, Rafa. Um, after your first match, you said that um, the the atmosphere with uh, very few people on the stands is a bit sad and it's supposed to be sad because of what the world has experienced in the past few months. Now that you have achieved such an, an incredible feat uh, and obviously you must be uh, very happy about this, does it feel a bit sad because of, of the very few people understand. Of course, no. Uh, of course, it's an important day for me, but uh, I, I, I am not stupid. No, uh, it's still a, a, a very sad situation worldwide. No, uh, so if you uh, ask me what's my feeling, of course, I am super happy. But in the other hand, I am not uh, uh, that happy as usual because the the situation is tough for most of the people around the world, you know, so, and I, we didn't enjoy, as always, a full crowd and uh, an amazing atmosphere, you know, so, yeah, not because I won the tournament, I changed my, my thoughts, you know, the, the, the situation is still sad and we are lucky enough to, to be able to, to, to practice, to, to play our sport, to have a tour, we can't thank enough uh, to the ATP and the, to Roland Garros and to the US Open and to everybody who make it big efforts uh, to organize uh, the events under these very difficult circumstances. Uh, but oh, I, I don't forget how tough is the situation in the in the world. So I just really hope that the situation improves uh, very soon. Yeah, I I've found those quotes from Rafa very sort of reassuring because there is so much of sports right now. And you saw this from how Danielle Collins, even in her post uh, fourth round press conference, I believe it was how after her last win over Jabir, like really bristled at the notion that she could be asked about what it's like to be playing during a pandemic or playing in a city that's continuing to shut yeah. down for the pandemic. And we've seen this from from Nadal best. I think Djokovic is also good about it in Paris. He got asked several times and give a much better answer than Collins to the same question. I, you know, even now that we're all done, I'm still a bit uneasy about the whole, you know, playing sports during a pandemic thing. My my uh, my hackles are not yet unraised, lowered, whatever happened to the hackles. I'm not really sure what they do exactly or what a hackle. Unhacked. I couldn't draw a picture of a hackle if I had to. And Bridget Robinson, another Patreon backer, uh, asks, and this is sort of, I'll throw this in this question too, discussion. She asks whether the thousands of fans 
or I'm sorry, whether the thousand fans, just single thousand, made this feel more like a major than the U.S. Open versus award. And she says, personally, I just made me nervous to see the crowd all sitting so close to one another, why they weren't more spread out around the stadium. And she says, I think New York felt as majory as Paris, which I would agree with. Actually, in some ways, I think it felt more majory because I think Paris, I think this French Open felt like its own existence. This whole like October thing was like unrecognizable to me. The whole roof and the lights in October. I did not recognize this tournament. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, night, nighttime clay tennis at Roland Garros was kind of wild, like having late yeah. finishes and stuff. But yeah, that's, the, I mean, I think that there's a few like really interesting points there. I think that like when we talk about sports being political or wanting athletes to be political, I think at least for me, a part of that equation is just wanting them to act like they are not, not act like, but that they are not sticking just to sports. Right. That they are yeah. engaging with the world around them, whatever that exactly. means, whether that means, you know, what do you think of the New York Times bestseller list? What do you think of, you know, to all the way down to elections and actual what we consider politics, politics. Right. Um, it doesn't mean they have to opine all the time, but just some sense of like you do not live in a hermetically sealed bubble and you recognize that there is a world going on around you of things happening that are more significant than what you do, which is entertain people. Yeah. That's, I mean, let's get down to brass tacks. That's what it is. And so I really appreciated Rafa kind of taking that, you know, that kind of stand on that. Not stand, but just not hiding it from yeah. the fact and and engaging in the fact that, yes, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And yes, this is weird and we're doing the best that we can. And so I think in, in that way, he he was on it. And I think that outside of that, I mean, getting back to the first question about was why was it less political and is that a good or bad thing? I mean, whether it was more or less political, a lot of that has to do with as well, you know, the what people are interested in, the questions that are being asked. I mean, the questions that were being asked in the U.S. Open of mostly American players or Naomi Osaka having to do with the politics in the United States at the moment, the po you know, the politics of the pandemic and things like that. That doesn't really translate once you get over to Paris. Like what exactly was politics that people wanted to be seen be seeing that was on display in Paris I'm not quite sure and that opens up oh go ahead well I was just gonna say I think it I think it's worth defining again like what politics means in sports right. and I do think that in sports and it, this goes to certainly American sports discussions of this you know stick to sports is just as political a statement as not sticking to sports. Oh, yeah. Like thinking yeah, yeah. that it should be a bubble, thinking, bubble meaning just like an, a thought bubble, right? That it should be a sort of oasis or vacuum away from the outer world and not be affected by it. It's just as political as taking a knee, right? Like these are just as political statements to think that it doesn't belong, that it does belong. It's not, nothing's neutral there. So yeah. Yeah, I think you see that certainly from the French Open organizers pushing through their tournament while their country and their city continues to grapple with an ongoing pandemic. It's a very political move. It's, it's obviously a business move and a profit driven move in a lot of ways. Wait, are politics also... and business, is that like an intertwined thing? <sighs> you know, I think so. I've heard about that. Wild, we'll, we'll, wild stuff. We'll dog ear that for later, but I, I think follow so. the money. Yeah, I mean, I you know, again, to use the word political in this sort of loose basis, which I do believe it is in life. Um, personal is political. Like I do think you know a, a Collins answer is as political as an Osaka answer in a lot of ways. Like they're all just sort of you know in their own ways. It's all taking, taking a stand. stand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's all it is. And that's what I think Rafa really did well. I think Novak did that well. And just showing the humanity of it, of the moment. And that's, again, the thing that I think Rafa really did well. And that's why I, I Bridget's totally right about this thing about the fans sitting close, so close together. That really bugged me throughout this tournament. Like, okay, you're only going to be at 
less than 10% capacity for a Chatrier, but you're all going to basically cram into the first eight rows of the stadium. And don't give me this, oh, they all must be family. Like, no, there's not like 12 person homes all over Paris with these people wearing like completely different outfits and different groups and whatever. They're all getting packed together. And I understand, yes, you all want the best seats possible, but the French Open optically did a really bad job of that part you could have done a much better job and i know obviously they, at least most of the fans and most of the entourages i thought did a really good job of wearing masks the whole time that the mask it was much better than like in rome yeah the mask and, uh <laughs> what's the word for like it? uh um etiquette or something oh, etiquette yeah. yeah it was, was generally much much better i'm not giving people the hardest time also like your mask occasionally slips below your nose for 10 seconds like okay like you're watching a match like i'm not gonna be too hard about and, that but generally you know it was what? really I, good and I will say this, and, and I absolutely agree with you. I feel the same way about hackles and sports in a pandemic. And it just stresses me out every single mm -hmm. time that I turn them on. It has to be said, it's been, what, two, three months now that sports has kind of returned globally, you know, professional sports under different rubrics, you know, almost all obviously with heavy, heavy testing, uh, masking and social distancing generally. Um, so those basic caveats, but it's gone off way safer than I would have expected. And thank goodness, first and foremost, but also that said, you know, is it because of the protocols? Is it because there are events that are that are dodging bullets? Like, yeah. you know, like, you know, that's the thing. It's like a lot of this does have to do with luck, right? Um, yeah. So because all it takes is like one super spreader to super spread. And then that thing ends up everywhere, which is what we're seeing in America uh -huh. in certain situations. Certain buildings in my hometown, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I worry about your city. Um, <laughs> that was like the it, biggest super spreader event we've had in D.C. Like... We've been DC's it been good. It was like the biggest super spreader event in the in the country. They, if you really up think our numbers, about it, man, screwing it's up nuts. our numbers. These people it's from nuts. wherever they're from, not here. And people always yeah. blame Washington for it. These people are not from Washington. These are send them back wherever they're from. Yes, you're right about the luck. I think the luck is clear. We obviously did the episode. Tumani and I believe it was when when Zverev played sick, right? Right. Was a huge, and the tournament didn't stop him, and he didn't self-report, and he went out there and then came in with the audacity to say, I'm completely sick, I had a fever, da-da-da-da-da, self-reporting to the press, if not to the tournament officials he was supposed to, about how he was just feeling ill and should have been put on some closer watch during this pandemic, right? Could you imagine being the, the man or woman that is charged with cleaning the interview rooms between interviews, and you're standing there, and you're like... <laughs> Excuse me, hold on now. I'm supposed to go in there with like my flimsy cloth mask and my gloves and like go clean after what I've just heard. Like it's stuff like that that drives me yeah. a little so bonkers. Was, like if was... people want to play roulette with their own situation, whatever. But yeah, the collateral effect freaks me out. So there was a huge degree of luck. I think there has been in a lot of sports. And there have obviously been, there's, just today we're recording this, I believe an NFL game got canceled today because of a oh. wave of Patriots game got canceled today because uh, of a wave right. of, uh, of, I forget who they're playing, a wave of positive tests there. And just so you know, like people are soldiering on and, and the risk reward is something you want to say. And, you know, we don't know. And I hate, I always feel like I'm getting so bleak and Cassandra-ish with these things, whatever. But we don't know if anybody caught COVID at the French Open and died from it. Like, we just True. don't know. We'll never know. Well, same with Adria Tour, same with anything else. We will never know, like, what the worst effects were of doing this. And you know, the reward is you get tennis. And I just remain increasingly uncomfortable, especially as the tour is going to shift almost all indoor now to these indoor events in across Europe, which the men have several of lined up. And, and there's one left, I guess, Ostrava, I'm sure, is an indoor event as well. 
you know, it's uh, it's um, it's tricky, and we'll see. And obviously, it's, we've plenty of time to talk about this heading into Australia. The whole Australia quarantine situation is gonna be something to keep an eye on. We'll do. We'll try to do a little yep. more of an explainer of that when that gets closer, because I think people even aren't sure exactly what that's gonna entail with players being told basically to quarantine for two weeks. Uh, they're not getting the same kind of quarantine exemption it's waiver a soft that they got quarantine. in the US. Yeah, but it's a little bit of a soft quarantine is what I think is what's being told, said right now, which is that like, because to ask professional athletes to genuinely ice, like quarantine in a hotel room for two weeks is impossible because yeah. like they're like, I think Simona was just like, there's how am I supposed to play? Like if I have to just sit in a hotel room. access and some sort of fitness access. Yeah, exactly. They won't like, be able to like, like go out in the town or something like that. Like, no, exactly. There will be like a tennis bubble. I think yeah. this is what Tennis Australia is saying. There'll be like a tennis bubble where you can, you have your hotel, you have sites, and you can like go back and forth between those, but you can't But you'll still have enter to get there the community. two weeks early before your first tournament. So cause I don't think you can be quarantined while playing. I don't think no. it can count. Like, I don't think Brisbane can count as one of your quarantine weeks. Sure, but you have to, but you have, no, I agree with that, but you have to, you have to be there, you have to be able to train, yeah. is what I oh, think yeah, yeah, the yeah. players would saying, argue, obviously. they like, before Christmas, like, all Sure, but I think that, I mean. I know they're used to that, but, like, I don't know. It's, I don't think that that's that big of a deal, just going for, just, like, basically being like, oh, you mean I don't have to, I'm not going to do, like, an extra, you know, my two weeks extra in indoor courts in the Czech Republic, and I'm yeah. just going to go and train in the the hundred, you know, the ninety to hundred degree heat, and get ready for the first slam. Like, I don't really think that has any outside of financially. I don't I will, think that has an impact, but financially, it's it's a bit of a it's I a bit of a brutal one, especially people going with, to play qualies and stuff. Yeah, with this new system, well, yeah, we can talk about this later. I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but with this new system, they should really bump up majorly first round prize money if you're making people get there two weeks early to compete like you got to pay for that time i wonder australia. if tennis Aust i wonder if you're tennis australia you pay for the core time if you pay yeah. the hotel bill that two-week hotel bill some sort of per day yeah i mean you, it you seems could. like i mean if you're already they're already i mean obviously it's a lot more than the whatever two thousand twenty five hundred dollar per diem or whatever and obviously the players are, are handsomely are compensated for their time already like, oh of course tennis players course. in general at slams are not getting underpaid i don't think well top players are i mean but I mean, again, you're talking about the lower ranked players who are kind of on the bubble of these events and maybe going down, you know, it's it's it w obviously would not make sense to core on your own dime for two weeks and then lose in the first round of qualies yeah. at the Australian Open. We also see how that sort of quarantine period affects media and other people who are not maybe getting the same amenities uh, there. So that's a big Massive. question, big question for all of us. It's a big question for international media, whether or not you can, you or your outlets can afford right now to pay for two weeks of a hotel room. Right. Over the holidays, just, this might even be To just rates. sit there. Yeah. Right. To just sit there. One, one last question I'll get to sort of wrap up here from, from Santosh Venkatraman asks what the challenges were of covering these lands remotely now that they're, we have our first two under our belt. Um, like you said, obviously, the times that these things are starting was rough. I, I actually do think if I have to cover Australia remotely, and who knows if that what's going to happen for anybody in January. So a long way to go in a lot of different aspects of life till then. But I would, I think I would, just from my own biological clock, I think I would have an easier time covering a nocturnal slam than this early, early morning slam. This does not gel with my my personal circadian preferences. But how is it, how is it for you, Courtney? I mean, do you, what did you, we talked, I think, after the US Open about sort of, or maybe even before this, I think it was our pre, it was our draw show, right? We started off being really like, yeah. eh, about this tournament saying how we would get all the work and none of the adrenaline. I feel like that kind of was the same too. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm 
and happiness is over on a lot of levels from a work perspective. But how are, how are you how are you feeling now that now that we have two slams under our belt remotely in a short period too? I think it's hard because obviously everything that I said before and in, in talking about how, what it's like to cover a slam remotely remained true for for the French Open. Um, and I think that the weird thing is that because it's not like if I was on site covering these events like my normal schedule that I wouldn't also be somewhat divorced from like real life. Like, right, mm -hmm. I would be in Paris, I'd be working in Paris time, whatever was happening at home or in America or in my family or my dog or like whatever is happening, like, I don't know what's happening because I'm not there, right? And, but you allow yourself to obviously divorce yourself from that and just focus on the work and do it. I just think it's, and it, this is something that's come up, I think, with a lot of people that I've talked to that are, that are doing remote coverage is just, it's it's so hard to still have to have all the responsibilities of living a normal life in normal working human hours in your time zone. But at the same time, you cannot. Like for me, the West Coast covering French Open, it's a 2 a.m. start time, 11 a.m. Paris. And then we go. And then like theoretically, I should be going to sleep at 5 or 6 p.m. in order to wake up again. But I live with my parents. I live with my dog. Like they can't switch up yeah, like they're no. living on their rhythm. My daughter. So it was just kind of this constant stress of of what the heck is going on. And that extra layer made it incredibly exhausting for sure. Yeah, I mean, you do what you have to do. And also, if, like for me, it can contrast with Ben. Like this is I've been doing this since Palermo. Yeah. Like it's been nonstop. And next week I'll get a little bit of a few day break before Ostrava and then obviously off after Ostrava can finally rest and kick up and prepare for next year. But just doing it back to back to back to back all the time and constantly just, yeah, changing times. It's just, I don't know. It's been it's been physically very, very difficult. It has been rough. And you're right, being in this sort of two, because you don't leave home. You really cannot virtually, especially when you're living with other people or just living in, in a house with windows, uh, you cannot, you know, completely trick yourself into thinking I'm in Paris. Like I changed, right. you know, the time on my computer to Paris. I changed other things to sort of Paris to be like, and I would, you know, check, had just for watching tennis, have to check the Paris weather constantly. But I'm not there. I'm still here. My own sort of transport to Paris, even just the times, got screwed up pretty early in this tournament on, I think, day four when I wanted to stay up to watch the first debate for the presidential election here. Which was a mistake on many levels, to be clear, <laughs> in retrospect. Um, and that even just staying up to like 11 p.m. that one night, which would have been 5 a.m. in Paris. And granted, there are nights at science where you do stay up that late. But I just had a really hard time with this extra obstacles getting fully back on Paris time ever. Maybe it happened maybe by the end. Gosh, it was so thankful when the when the semifinals or whatever started and we had some 3 p.m. Paris starts, which were 9 a.m. here. That makes a huge, such a huge difference between 9 a.m. obviously and 5 a.m. for start times. But it was, it was tricky. And yeah, obviously with everything going on in America right now and lots of levels, uh, it's tough to totally check out of that. And, you know, on some levels, that could be not bad. I remember recording you saying earlier in the year, and obviously, I'm not sure why this is good or bad, but you were, I remember you <laughs> reacting early in the year when you realized that you were going to be in Shenzhen during the election. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my and gosh. Yeah. now that's not happening. So Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was Pete Holterman who ra who who raised that like I think last year in Shenzhen. He's like, do you realize we're gonna be in Shenzhen during the twenty twenty election presidential election? Like this is where we're gonna find out what happens. And I just like looked at him and I was like, oh my god! Like, yeah. so obviously not the case. Have my ballot filled out. Gonna go drop it off this week. But yeah, 
peculiar. I mean, it's wild to think about all the stuff that we just did not see coming as early as, you know, end of February, like how yeah. quickly everything changed and where we're at. And I have to say, wishing all goodwill and best of luck to to all my friends and colleagues who who have to continue to cover for another few weeks because the the ATP is now kind of in earnest doing its whole swing, mm-hmm. you know, because only because that if you're working that beat, that's that's a lot of work that still has to be done before you can kind of kick it up. And I have to say that for myself, like I am very much looking forward to kicking it up, you know, by whatever, like before October is over. Like basically, like my season always goes through the end of the WTA finals, which is obviously like first week of November typically. Mm-hmm. And I did, there, there are no finals this year. I did not qualify for the finals if they existed. <laughs> my season ends in mid-October uh, after Beijing. We're good to go. I think you qualified based on the ATP's rules. So basically you're like, we're going to keep all the 2019 rankings anyways. There's like no race this year. But yeah, I will say also you mentioned Palermo, but just this is a more separate debate than people are like oh there's no wta events like and they're like season's ending earlier boo wta is like they also started like multiple weeks earlier and got ahead of this and had multiple events before new york which multiple outdoor events not. yeah outdoor events right and, and had it when it was, it was still summer <laughs> safer and not putting those indoor events in major european cities with spiking covid so shout out to women's tennis on that note courtney thank you for being here on this rap show We'll have more. NCR is going to still keep being weekly as the as the season trickles to a finish on the men's side. It'll probably be less about that. I mean, we'll see how the rest of the year goes. I'm sure we'll acknowledge that London is happening or something. But we also have other guests and stuff. If you have recommendations or suggestions for things you want us to cover or talk about during the rest of the year, happy to get those. Take obviously we have ideas as too, I, as I did. Yeah. Like in terms of like expanding into random things to do just when while tennis isn't happening and stuff like that so if anybody has any i'm sure we can do like an election episode or two on patreon also after that god i mean these are going to be i'm honestly that's the one thing i really am not literally so so the debate obviously screwed me up that one time and there was literally just a night where i like went to 538 and like couldn't sleep for five hours oh don't do that what have we learned four years ago man i know no i know no you don't go to 538 thing no, you don't look at 538. You you don't follow and you mute Nate Silver. You just like it's I can't pretend it's, that's not my that's not my method. I can't pretend it's not happening. No, but I it's can't. not about not happening. I can pre- I can absolutely ignore the punditry and the and the all of that. It's like I like I stayed up and I watched the the vice presidential debate. Yeah. Because you know, support your girl. Mm-hmm. And the minute that it was over, I sent the tweet. I was like, "Don't don't go to MSNBC. You guys know what you saw." Yeah. You know what you think and you don't need any of that. You do not need as beautiful as it is to see Pete Buttigieg tear up Fox News with his with. I mean, he's been a great surrogate, it has to be said. But like, I don't give a shit. I'm, you know, right? Like, you know what you no, think. No, no. You know so how is, you're going to vote. Is, like, it's is, not I don't is, like politics as entertainment. I don't. This is different than what I get from what I was saying for 38. Mine was more just looking at like all their probability stuff. That's what I was doing, much less than punditry, which I understand didn't really mean much last time. But anyway, that's enough. We'll have plenty of time. I don't want to. That's what I'm saying. Like now that this French up is over, now like all I have in my head is like election stuff for the next solid month, if it even ends by then. I still have very well ingrained PTSD from 538 and that New York effing Times needle that all was swinging (laughs) back and forth, left and right until it finally swung 
one too far. I haven't seen the needle this year. I think they buried Courtney got the drunk needle, real so fist. That's, that's good. Just no needles. Just, just like everybody, go vote. Just go vote. Go vote, and then we will count the votes, and then there will be a civil war in America. And that's that what. Note. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Thank you, especially buckle down the hatches before we all get in our bunkers. Thank you to our Patreon Slam Champ backers who are with us in the bunker in many ways. Liz Kettle, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Leo Williams, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Susanna W., Jean Simeon, and Antonio Maycumber, as well as our GOAT bunker backers, Nicole Copeland, Mike, Charles Cena, and J-O-D. Happy to be in the bunker with all of them. Oh my gosh, the best bunker. Best bunker. It has thank board you. games. Thank you, everybody else, for yeah, so many board games. You can play so many <laughs> board games. I'm looking forward to playing board Yeah, we can do board game content. We should. Uh, we're, Why not? We're, we're exploring the wide world of Twitch. Yes. So, we're, yes. Or, or whatever, I, OBS, whatever. I was up until, like, I was up, like, the other night, like, super late, like, just, like, watching different Twitch streams. It's fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. And on that note. Like, what makes good ones and which ones make bad ones. It's right. interesting. All right. See you, folks. Au revoir from Paris. Quote unquote. Uh, bye bye. <laughs> Quote unquote. <laughs> I wish we could turn back time to the good old days.